It took Brahms something like 20 years to complete his first symphony. He started it sometime in the mid-1850s, and he finished it in 1876, certainly two decades later. And there really are times when you listen to the first symphony when it does sound like the product of a titanic and painful struggle. unmistakably Beethovenian struggle there, kind of titanic C minor tone, which clearly looks back to Beethoven in Brahms's first symphony. And a special thanks to our contrabassoonist, David Buckland, for coming in just to play that one extract. Thank you. <laughs> because there's no contrabassoon in Brahms's second symphony. And indeed, the contrast goes a lot further than that. Because if it took Brahms 20 years to complete his first symphony, his second seems to have been written in a single summer holiday, the year after the first symphony. Extraordinary contrast there, 1877. Brahms wrote the second symphony in his favourite village of Perchach, near Wörthersee, the great Wörthersee lake, in the middle of the Alpine area that we call Carinthia. It was the same area that provided such a fertile inspiration for Mahler and for Alban Berg. So it sounds like this work had a relatively easy birth and in very convivial surroundings. Well, how else would one explain such easily flowing warmth of a tune like this one? other times when the second symphony sounds quite playful by contrast. Now, that's not a word you normally associate with a figure like Brahms, is it? Playful. You know, imagine that stout patrician figure with his Old Testament prophet beard kicking off his boots and capering nimbly. It's not an image that comes readily to mind. But what about this then from the beginning of the finale?
There's so many touches in that music there that you just don't normally associate with Brahms. I love particularly that little abandoned flourish on both the clarinets. There's a recording by Sir Thomas Beecham where that sounds so wild and gloriously joyous that you can imagine the clarinets have just made it up on the spot. It sounds terrific. Reminds me of a site that's quite common where I live in Herefordshire, and certainly around here, I imagine, of a very young lamb in the field when, for some reason or other, they just take off vertically. It looks like for sheer joy of living, you get that wonderful boing effect as a lamb springs in the air, and that reminds me irresistibly of that little clarinet flourish that we've just heard there. Well, we've just heard a bit of the first movement of the second symphony and of the finale. Now, the third is no exception to this mood of the symphony, this suggestion of the symphony as being a kind of summer holiday diversion. It's one of those intermezzo-like movements that Brahms writes almost in a place of a scherzo. If you think of those great elemental, dancing, pounding, cosmic scherzos that Beethoven writes, Brahms is generally very different in his symphonic works, and that's certainly the case in this particular symphony. Perhaps this is the lightest and most whimsical of all Brahms's ersatz scherzos. That little teasing pause there is, is very typical of the way Brahms treats us in this movement. It's full of little deft surprises all the time. Just keeps you on your, your toes, despite the seemingly relaxed nature of this music. In fact, the character of that music there almost seems closer to Brahms's wind serenades that are much more chamber music-like in character. It's very striking, looking throughout the symphony, how many solos there are. Just about every department of the orchestra has its turn in the solo spotlight. It's as though Brahms wants to make sure that every part of the orchestra is highlighted at some area. Now, I brought along with me my faithful old Eulenburg miniature score of this symphony today, partly to have a look at what it says in the introduction. This is the score that I think most music lovers who collect scores will have. And the introduction, I think, has probably defined an awful lot of people's ideas about what this symphony is like, what its character is. There's one comment that struck me where the author of the introduction says, the second symphony, in direct contrast to the almost tragic mood of the first, is cheerful and bright in character. Full stop. That seems to be all that it's necessary to say about the character of this symphony. But Brahms himself made some very strange comments about the Second Symphony. Well, actually, Brahms's sense of humour altogether was very strange indeed. Brahms seemed to have a habit of saying almost exactly the opposite of what you expect him to say, and saying it in such a way that it completely catches you by surprise. He can be quite blunt about it, too. Someone asked him what his second piano concerto was going to be like when it was just about to come, and Brahms described it as simple, a German word which actually means simple-minded, naive, which is about as unlike the second piano concerto as you could imagine. 
When one of his close female friends wrote to him and asked him what this new second symphony was going to be like, Brahms suggested that she do the following. I love this. You have only to sit at the piano, put your tiny feet on the two pedals in turn, and strike the chord of F minor several times in succession, first in the treble and then in the bass, fortissimo and pianissimo, and you will gradually gain a vivid impression of my latest creation. Which, to any of you who know the symphony, I think will be... Well, let's see, it's not immediately what springs to mind when you picture the second symphony. Surely Brahms is having some sort of laugh here. But he kept on in this vein. When Clara Schumann, his closest of all his female friends, uh, asked him what the symphony was like, he told her that it was quite elegiac in character. And another colleague was informed, the musicians here play my new work with black crepe round their arms because it sounds so mournful. It will be printed on black-edged paper. Well, this all does sound like a tremendous joke, considering what we've just heard. Is this a very heavy Brahms playfulness? Well, no, I think there's more to it than that, actually, because it's quite interesting. One specific exchange that, unfortunately, Brahms only reported, although it's significant that he did feel it ought to be reported, apparently a friend, an unnamed friend, took Brahms to task for the gloom and harsh dissonance, quote, of a passage in the first movement. It's the passage where the trombones pile up a motif in close imitation. And as soon as you see the passage described on paper, you know immediately which one he means. It has to be this. <laughs> Brahms's response to that unnamed friend is actually quite interesting. He begs to be excused. I'm sorry it offended you, he says. But it's inevitable, he says, on the grounds of my habitual melancholy, which is an interesting comment, I think. And the slow movement of this symphony, the second movement of the second symphony, I think most would agree, is actually the darkest and most troubled of all Brahms's symphonic slow movements. The first theme really is elegiac. You could imagine something like this being played at some maybe uh, funereal occasion as a lamenting falling theme, a wonderful noble falling theme on the cellos. And note the dark colours in the orchestration at the beginning. We've got a low countersubject on a bassoon, and very unusually for Brahms, we've got a bass tuba as well.
That's the fascinating thing about Brahms' tunes. They seem very clearly laid out on paper, but when you try and find a place to stop them, it always seems unbelievably cruel and crass because that tune just goes on evolving melodically for page after page after page. But this does seem to be a symphony with many possible layers of meaning. On one level, it has a kind of popular nickname. It's been known for quite some time, as unofficially, as Brahms's pastoral symphony in comparison with Beethoven's six. And that's not at all out of place, not just because of some kind of question of atmosphere, but musical imagery to match. The horn in German music is an ancient symbol of the forest. In fact, the old name in German for the valveless horn, the natural horn, is the Waldhorn, the woodland horn or the forest horn. The image of huntsman comes to mind or something more primal. And the forest is a great symbol in German culture. That great writer Elias Kinetti wrote in his fascinating study, Crowds and Power, about what he calls national symbols. And very convincingly, for instance, he suggests that the English national symbol is the sea. But he points out very strongly that the national symbol of Germans is the forest. It turns up in poetry, it turns up in fairy stories, it turns up in painting and in musical evocations time and time again. And the horn crucially plays a part in that almost whenever a German composer evokes the forest. The horns, in fact, set the tone right at the beginning of this symphony. At the very beginning, they're the ones that announce the main theme. If you think of the beginning of another great German pastoral symphony, or great Germanic pastoral symphony, Bruckner's Fourth Symphony, which the symphony he called the Romantic, that also begins with a magical horn solo, this time calling through tremolando strings, a clear evocation of rustling foliage. But woodland isn't always a beautiful bucolic peaceful kind of imagery in German literature. If you think about some of those fairy stories where there are eventful, important meetings in forests, some of them aren't very nice encounters, are they? Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, for instance. And it's also possibly true of some of Brahms's pastoral imagery in the Second Symphony. There's a passage at the heart of the second movement, the slow movement, which was nicely described by Brahms's biographer Malcolm MacDonald as a journey which penetrates the deepest part of the forest if not to the Wolf's Glen itself. Now, I better explain, the Wolf's Glen is the scene of some particularly spectacular demonic happenings in the heart of a forest. In Weber's opera, Der Freischutz, it's an amazing scene musically. It impressed Beethoven. In fact, when Beethoven saw the score of Der Freischutz, he's supposed to have said, to think that little mannequin Weber could write music like this, Weber must now write nothing but operas, one after the other, which is something to live up to, isn't it? 
But um, Weber did effectively create in Der Freischutz, or at least patented and popularized, a language of German romantic forest music. It's the same language that Wagner drew on when he created the imagery of the forest in his opera Siegfried, particularly rustling tremolando strings suggesting foliage, perhaps with chromatic, mysterious harmonies and somber orchestral colors to evoke dark primal powers. There's a passage that sounds very like that at the heart of the slow movement of Brahms's second symphony. There's a sudden hush, you'll hear the string tremolos, the murky harmonies, and eerie chromatic calls, but not on the horn, but by rather interesting relatives of the horn, the solo trombone and the tuba. I particularly like the way in this passage the noble, elegiac first theme that we heard on the cellos from the beginning of the movement tries to reassert itself in the face of this slightly disturbing revelation. In fact, it seems to fail at first and to have to square itself for another attempt. And even then, it needs a couple more tries before it can restore its confidence completely. We'll take it back just a couple of bars and you'll see what I mean. But it seems possibly then that Brahms wasn't just teasing when he made these seemingly provocative remarks about the Second Symphony, when he said that it was terribly dark and somber and elegiac. Perhaps he wasn't just bluntly stating the opposite of what the symphony was about. Perhaps he foresaw that people would see it as lighter and more cheerful in comparison to the First Symphony, and he wanted people just to listen a little bit harder to appreciate that this is a richer and more complex work than it initially appears. 
And it's not just the kind of emotional, symbolic language which benefits from a closer look in the Second Symphony, because the Second Symphony is also quite an advance on the first when it comes to symphonic architecture or symphonic reasoning, logic. If that sounds dry and abstract, it isn't at all. It's as much a part of the life's blood of this music as its emotionally charged musical symbols. Now, many of us, I'm sure, have felt, listening to Brahms' music, and particularly to a symphony like this, that it's strongly integrated, that it's highly unified music. A composer friend of mine actually used to say that if a composer has really done his job properly, listeners should feel the logic behind the music, even if they don't know a thing about musical technique or if they can't read music. I think that's true about Brahms. We can feel that it's very well argued, even if we don't know why. I'm sure it won't do any harm, with the aid of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and our conductor, Theodore Kuchar, to have a closer look at this music. Remember that wonderful pastoral opening of the symphony, replete with its horn call, just like this. Now, there's one little detail there that hardly seems worth pointing out at all. Surely it's just there to set the music in motion. It's this little figure on the cellos and basses right at the beginning. It sets the piece in motion and it punctuates the real theme, or what appears to be the real theme, on the horns. And surely that's all it's there for. It's just a kind of figuration, isn't it? Well, no. Actually, it's crucial to this symphony. It's the real seed from which so much of its later musical foliage springs. If you put that figure up just a fifth, that da-da-dum, on the violins, it sounds like this. And that is the musical launching pad for that wonderful, warm, flowing tune we heard near the start of the programme. It's the first three notes, in fact. And a moment or two later, that same little figure Da da dum becomes the basis for this little chattering woodwind exchange. A little later, that da da dum becomes the basis of this figure with a kind of rapid dum da da dum da da dum da da rhythm. It's still, however, the same, exactly the same shape of one descending and one rising chromatic note. And throughout the Second Symphony, this figure goes on and on, generating new ideas. In fact, it's very rare to find a tune 
a melody in this symphony that doesn't begin with some form of those three notes. For instance, the finale theme, da-da-dum, it's the same figure that launches this theme. And even that gentle chamber music-like intermezzo theme that begins the third movement also starts with that motive. Only this time, Brahms puts it upside down so that instead of falling and rising, it rises and falls. Da, da, dum. And it becomes even clearer when Brahms speeds up this theme and has the violins play it presto. All the way through that passage, you can hear Brahms making new ideas all the time out of a very simple dum-pum-pum or bum-pum-pum. There's no end to his kind of thematic ingenuity in this symphony and the way he extracts so much from what seems like such a simple and unprepossessing little idea. It's even there in what I call that Wolf's Glen passage at the heart of the slow movement. If you listen to those baleful calls on the trombone and the tuba, one plays that little three-note figure upside down, and the tuba answers with the three-note figure in its original form, down, up. And of course, when we come to those harsh and gloomy trombone imitations that Brahms' friend took exception to in the first movement, you'll find that once again, they're based on exactly that same figure. ba 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 Remember Brahms's response to that unnamed friend who took him to task for that passage. He begged to be excused on the grounds of his, quotes, habitual melancholy. There doesn't seem to be much doubt, looking back, that Brahms was prone to quite serious depression at times. Actually, one friend of his once remarked, when Brahms is in particularly good spirits, he sings, the grave is my joy. <laughs> Well, if you look at the composer of the Alto Rhapsody, maybe, or the four serious songs, you can perhaps see his point. But it seems to me, to my ears, there's an awful lot of very genuine joy in this second symphony. So perhaps what we're just looking at here is a work with many facets, a double-sided symphony, you might say, emotionally. I mean, well, how often is life itself? Is our experience uncomplicatedly joyous or melancholy? One of the most playful comments of all that Brahms made to a friend when the symphony appears is quite interesting. He was writing to his publisher and he calls the symphony this lovely atrocity, this lieblicher ungeheuer. It's a wonderful phrase in German, isn't it? Well, isn't that just a bit like life? Life itself can be a wonderful atrocity. It can be glorious one moment and terrible the next. And what's really remarkable in this extraordinarily vital symphony 
is the way that Brahms draws together these starkly contrasting sides of the work's character by the use of this all-pervasing, germinating seed from the beginning of the symphony. Just those three notes that we had on the cellos and basses. Ba -da -dum -bum. You could say that Brahms uses this melodic, thematic, motivic technique to present a unified worldview, the kind of thing you might put it as a translation of that wonderful German word, Weltanschauung. Joy and pain, that's life. It's all part of the same human lot. But you can integrate those extremes, understand it, and maybe that's what maturity is all about. Well, I suspect this left a mark, quite a mark, on another very different composer, a very different figure from Brahms, Gustav Mahler. Ideologically, these composers were very strongly opposed. Brahms was what you might call a classical romantic, with the emphasis very much on the classical bit. And he was also rather pessimistic about the future. Mahler, however, saw only opportunities to extend the range and power of orchestral music in particular in what was happening in music at the time. The two men rather admired each other, as it turned out. Brahms certainly admired Mahler as a conductor. And there's a story that the two men once met by that lake in Corinthia that both of them found so inspiring. And they looked down into the water, and Brahms was talking gloomily about how he saw himself as part of what he called a last wave of the great German tradition. Mahler looked down at the rippling surface of the lake and said, well, there goes another last wave, and another, and another. And what Brahms said to that isn't recorded. But Mahler famously took a very different view from Brahms about the nature of the symphony. He said, the symphony should be like the world. It should embrace everything. Now, you can imagine Brahms shuddering in his boots at that thought. But Mahler is very keen to draw the hugely contrasting, contradictory, paradoxical elements of his world vision into some kind of musical unity, too. And it seems that in this case, he turned not so much to his idol Wagner for inspiration as possibly to Brahms, and perhaps particularly to this second symphony. Mahler's Symphony No. 1 is in the same key as Brahms's second. It's in the key of D major. And it seems to take as its starting point a very mysterious passage that momentarily troubles the high spirits of Brahms's finale. It's just a passing moment before the finale theme returns, rather like that brief Wolfslen vista in the second movement of the symphony. That passing, mysterious, clouded music only seems to last a moment, but one idea in particular seems to have caught Mahler's ear. Atmospheric string unisons and woodwind figures in descending chains of fourths.
When Mahler created the beginning of his own Symphony No. 1, his own D major symphony, just around 10 years after Brahms' second, Mahler created his own mysterious string unison sound. This time it's a fantastic bit of scoring involving multiple string harmonics. And he added the same chains of descending fourths in the woodwind, like this. It could be just a passing resemblance, except for the way that Mahler uses that descending fourth that we heard on the woodwind at the beginning. Bam, bam. He uses it exactly the same way that Brahms uses da, 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 from the Second Symphony to unify the ideas, the contrasting multiform ideas of this symphony by drawing them all together. So many of them take that little motive as its starting point. It's very clearly the beginning for the clarinet's imitation of the sound of a cuckoo. And the same descending fourth, launches the main theme of Mahler's first movement, the Allegro theme. And even the sardonic, blackly humorous funeral march of the third movement of Mahler's symphony is underpinned by exactly the same interval, the falling forth on the timpani. Just as in Brahms' second symphony, in Mahler's first, the more you look at it, the more you discover that the motifs the ideas, the musical symbols, the long melodies, all flower from the same melodic seed. A very simple germinal idea that's planted right at the beginning of the symphony, so quickly that you'd almost not notice it. But it becomes the basis of so many of the important ideas of the symphony. So though, although Mahler's musical universe is very different from Brahms', it's completely different, Mahler couldn't obviously help me be impressed by the way that Brahms drew all these ideas in his Second Symphony and other works like it together by the use of one unifying motif. And clearly, that was the inspiration for his own idea, to draw all the ideas that he wanted to embrace in his own symphonic world together. Mahler also, I'm sure, couldn't help being impressed by the wild, joyous abandon of the ending of Brahms' Second Symphony, which is in many ways rather like the end of his own D major symphony. Yet at the same time, Brahms is also still creating new ideas from that seed. Ba -da -dum. You'll hear it all the way through this final, raucous, wonderful, uninhibited, 
joyous final section of the Brahms Second Symphony. It ends with perhaps the most, the most uninhibited sound in all Brahms. We have exuberant fanfares on the trumpets, and then there's a raucous shout on the tonic major triad from three very high trombones. It's the equivalent, if you can imagine Brahms as some sort of solid, bearded, patrician gentleman hurling his hat in the air. That's exactly what it sounds like at the end of the symphony. Wonderful. Well, we'll hear the BBC National Orchestra of Wales perform the complete Second Symphony of Brahms in a moment. But before that, it's your chance to make your own views known or ask questions if you have. And before that, just to get us going, I think I have a few questions I'd rather like to ask our conductor. Uh, Theodore, when you look at a symphony like this, when you prepare it for rehearsal, do you go looking for these kind of connections that Brahms provides, or do you kind of trust the musical logic to work for itself? You know, it's very difficult at times to give an honest answer, because there are certain works, such as the Brahms Second Symphony, which we've been surrounded by in many different forms from our childhood, whether it was parents playing recordings and you absorbing subconsciously, whether it was your first experiences as a violinist in the youth orchestra, or simply from reading and curiosity. Naturally, we absorb these standard gems in, in, in different ways. But on the other hand, a lot of my life during the past 10 years has been spent making CDs, but not necessarily of standard repertoire. Now I'm going through a Martinu phase in my life. Before that, we had recorded the complete works of Prokofiev, mm -hmm. and some which you know, were not very well represented. In works like this, which you don't have such a lifetime of experience, mm -hmm. naturally, I think one forces themselves to study in a much more scientific way and to look for these, these small things which mm -hmm you have so geniusly presented to, to our audience today. Would you, would you agree with me, though, that this point that this composer friend of mine made that if a composer has really done the job properly, this kind of logic should be something that anyone can feel, a child coming to the music for the first time. It, it's not something that you have to pick out and understand. Absolutely, and I think, you know, quite often, musicians especially tend to look down sometimes on the warhorses, the Brahms twos, the Smetna Moldaus, the Dvořák New World symphonies, they're warhorses for a very good reason. They're loved not only by listeners, but also as, as musicians. There are, there are certain works that we come back to repeatedly. And with, without, without this, our profession would be a much, much more shallow one. Yes, I agree. I don't know about you, but I have experiences, I don't know how many times I've heard this symphony, where you're beginning to get a bit used to it, and suddenly something, I don't know, a good piece, a good performance on the radio, or something, a good concert performance, or maybe recently having experience of trying to play the four-hand version of it on the piano with a, 
with a friend of mine, and suddenly you realize, what on earth have I been thinking of? This is absolutely astonishing music. He's the godfather, really, in many ways, of the modern symphony, isn't he? I think he... And would you buy this idea that maybe somebody like Mahler learnt from Brahms' example? There's, there's no question. Mm. We as instrumentalists, as musicians, naturally, we, through recordings, through the very good teaching that, that we may have had, we look at people who established a tradition as our teachers, performers that, that we use as an, as an example for us. And I think every composer must yeah. analyze their own creativity and progress through great traditions of the past, and not necessarily to imitate anything which has existed, but to use this as a foundation and naturally to, within your own language, mm. take it in your own direction. I'm just wondering if anybody else would like to ask a question. There's a gentleman over here. Why do you think that Brahms was reluctant to write symphonic scherzos? The fourth symphony is the only one that has a, a real scherzo. Well, you, that's a very interesting point. You say it's a real scherzo, except it's in two beats in a bar. And scherzos, of course, are traditionally in three. There is one terrific Brahms scherzo, but it's actually in the F minor piano quintet, which shows that he could really do it as, as well as Beethoven. But I, I wonder, I mean, it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. One reason why Brahms said, for instance, that it took him so long to finish his first symphony, well, partly there was such a, a weight of expectation on him from his great mentor, Schumann, who said, one day you're going to write symphonies to rival Beethoven. And more and more critics were saying, this is the man who can write symphonies to rival Beethoven. That's a, a bit of a job to live up to, isn't it? And Brahms himself on one occasion said, you've no idea how hard it is with a giant like that marching behind you. you know? In fact, he said at the end of that letter, I don't think I'll ever have the nerve to finish a symphony. Maybe one way in which he could establish his own, as it were, separate domain in the symphony was not to imitate Beethoven in that absolutely quintessentially Beethovenian style with those cosmic dances that he creates in his symphony, but to create something else that's much more in his own character, these much gentler movements, these more intermezzo-like movements, which, which often have their faster, more airborne, more dancing moments. But it's as though Brahms is saying, I'm not Beethoven, this is what I do. And it's also a way of bringing another side of his character, often the side that you see more in his chamber music and his songs into the world of his symphonies as well. I would guess that that was possibly the case. Would that make sense to you? Yes, it does. Thank oh, you. Oh, good.